Hello, Ice Coffee listeners. Welcome to August 2021. Or, if you're listening to this in the future, welcome to the past. Recently, the host of the Habeas Humour podcast, Sharon Frankel, alerted me to the idea that I should include trigger warnings when I'm lining up an episode featuring content that people might find distressing. Such warnings cost me nothing and might save a listener from surprise PTSD shakeups. So thanks to Sharon, apologies to everyone else for not spotting the opportunity before now, and I'll note that this is a fairly melancholy episode as it recounts harrowing deaths by fire. My father's role in flammability research saw me grow up with a healthy respect for flashpoints and flames and a habit of working out my emergency egress and practicing it with my eyes closed any time I've moved into a new home or joined a ship. Subsequent firefighting training reinforced that I really, really never want to face death in flames. I didn't enjoy reading or writing about the Eagle House fire, and I hope I don't upset anyone too much in speaking the story into the digital ether. Most recent historical episodes focused on events at Stonington Island and the US Navy operations that resulted in among many other outcomes, the relief of the rare and the resupply of Trapassi House. The FIDs stationed at other bases around the Antarctic Peninsula weren't contemplating their naval navels through the period those episodes covered, so here's a catch-up on their 1947 activities and a follow-up into their 1948 activities. Doc Andrew took up temporary leadership at Deception Island, replacing Featherstone, Argentine and Chilean ships visited the volcano Caldera 23 times that austral summer, so he was kept busy with publishing and delivering the formal protest notes, and then hosting the Patagonian officers to tea and whatever the remote station equivalent of crumpets is. Having been fully briefed on both the protocol and practicalities by his predecessor, he also kept an eye on anything portable, trying to minimise Patagonian looting of the increasingly derelict whaling station. Commander Ted Bingham's final action during his departure from Antarctica involved a visit to a Chilean presence established in Discovery Bay on Greenwich Island, the first in-situ protest notes passed between Britain and Chile regarding Antarctic territory. The Trapassi's motorboat's engine gave out as the landing party approached the grinning Chileans lining the shore. Being rescued, wet, cold and with your boat smashed up by the burgy bits roiling in the shorebreak, isn't a good way to kick off a formal protest note handover. So it's a good thing the Trapassi Mariners got the engine going again before anything of that kind transpired. Commander Bingham struggled with the language barrier his lack of Spanish presented until the Chilean party leader, Commander Copayotic, opened up with his fluent English after the requisite period of comedic misunderstandings and arm-waving. Watching Anglo-monolinguists trying and failing to communicate, speaking loud and slow and making incomprehensible mind shows of what they want their interlocutor to understand, isn't a game reserved for people who don't speak English. You can pretend to not speak English at any moment and receive the free entertainment on offer. The Chileans hosted their guests convivially. Ted Bingham noticed they possessed five sheep for asado purposes through the coming winter, I think these being the first ovines to arrive in Antarctica alive. 
Rees and Nicholson were relieved from the temporary accommodations at Admiralty Bay, the effort to establish the tiny short-term toehold on King George Island being deemed worthwhile, based on their having hosted Argentine naval officers of the ship Don Samuel during their stay, affording the usual protest note exchange and demonstrating British firstness on the ground. Throughout their winter at Hope Bay, Elliot and co. planned the sledge journey south to Stonington Island. The intended route would take the sledges south of Nordenfeld's 1902 record at Cape Disappointment. The plan involved meeting up with the Stonington Island contingent at Three Slice Nun Attack to replenish their stores and to cross the spine of the peninsula with the, relative, locals and join the Trapassi House residents as new signatories on the lease. A depot party worked south to the Seal Rocks to give the sledging party aiming for Stonington Island their last top-up before embracing their fate and pushing on to base E or death. That sounds dramatic, sat here in the warm with access to electricity and a small long black available for one Australian dollar at the nearest 7-Eleven, but it was the fact of the matter in the day. The trip involved a significant stretch beyond the point of safe return, and with the seal haul-outs beyond Nordenfeld's furthest south anticipated as few and far between, they needed to hit their marks and times or they'd be in the shit. Those marks and times held some leeway, because the FIDs understood the A factor better than Scott and similarly optimistic past operators, but their geographic and temporal goals couldn't extend infinitely. A month late would be too late. Five miles off course would be too far off course. Elliot intended departing on the 17th of October but crook weather added two days to the wait. Then, a recalcitrant dog team turned downhill and charged back toward Eagle House, Max style, forcing Elliot to overturn his sledge and bring the ensemble to a halt before obstacles and drops damaged the hard-prepared sledge and its stores. The cowcatcher broke off the sledge regardless, forcing another delay. Four days out, a number of the bridge structures in the new sledges broke, so they depoted their cargo and returned to Eagle House with bare-bones vittles to make repairs. Further crook weather precluded their redeparture, so Elliot, Francis, Choice and Aidy weren't properly on the trail until the 27th. By that point, warming weather made the sea ice surface a sloppy mush, forcing the party to seek campsites in the snowberms formed to the leeward of grounded icebergs. The surfaces deteriorated, switching from slush to barely iced over pools of fresh water, able to support the dog's weight, but leaving the sledge runners and the monkeys running alongside wet. Ray Aidy's lead dog, Joy, fell into a deeper than average pool, exhausting herself in the attempt to regain ground that didn't similarly break up beneath her. She whelped a record 14 puppy litter that evening though I think dogs get pregnant by some means other than cold water immersion, and any attempt to link her pregnancy to the drubbing falls into the post-hoc ergo propter-hoc trap. Ten days behind schedule, the pace required to stay within safe time parameters worked against attempts to survey and geologise effectively, both activities taking time and each getting in the way of the other when opportunities arose for A.D. or Francis to ply their trades. 
You can't geologize effectively from a distance, or at least you couldn't at the time, and you can't survey features effectively from up close. Elliot marshalled his resources, trying to balance the three-way tug-of-war on their time and food, and the names applied to the newly picked out landmarks reflect the zeitgeist of the journey. Caution Point, Exasperation Inlet, Point Delusion. Ray 80 got ashore at Cape Disappointment, named by Nordenweld in a similar mood, to find a fossilised forest, the tree trunks still standing where they were buried in volcanic regolith. Back on trail, the ice surfaces deteriorated to the point the party headed along the peninsula itself, but the crevasses they encountered posed their own problems. At one point in their traverse, they had to throw their dogs over an otherwise impassable gap in the trail and work out a complicated system of ropes and pulleys to get the sledges across. Beyond this, they faced a descent so steep they resorted to lowering each sledge on ropes. Ray 80's sledge got away from them and shot down the slope and then out onto the sea ice, though as it didn't overturn, this turned out to be a boon, saving them a lot of energy and effort. Not that anyone proposed attempting similar gravity-assisted transits for the rest of the sledges. As recounted in episode 125, the Stonington contingent, comprising Freeman, Thompson, McLeod, DiGiorgio, and McLean arrived at the proposed rendezvous point on the 28th of December, but with no radio in either sledging party, they had to sit and wait and see if the Hope Bay punters arrived, the alternative being that they died somewhere unknown at some unknown time from unknown but fairly narrowly defined causes. Given the late start and the tribulations experienced on trail, the Hope Bay party did a magnificent job turning up just two days out from their target. The cigars and the booze and the explosive celebratory pudding already got their mentions in 125, so now it's on to what went on in the north in the meantime, other than to mention the first transit between Hope Bay and Stonington Island, the first one-way journey in Antarctica, covered over 600 miles, 200 of which previously never received footprints. All up, the journey took 71 days. After visiting and being impressed by the port of Beaumont, ship version, during their visits to Stonington Island, Governor Sir Miles Clifford and Captain Burden recommended the British Colonial Office procure a similarly capable vessel to support FID's operations. They sent James Wordy to the USA, where he found a boom defence vessel, Auxiliary Netlayer 76, suitable for the task. Small, Sturdily built, powerful and nimble, boom defence vessels worked the heavy steel nets used as a defence against torpedo attack around individual ships or across harbour entrances and approaches. With steel prioritised for fighting ships during the Second World War, half of the United States boom defence fleet of the era featured pitch pine hulls. AN-76 served as HMS pretext under the Lend-Lease Agreement during the war, and returned to the US after hostilities ended, where James Wordy selected it as the first almost iceworthy FIDS vessel. AN-76 crossed the Atlantic once more, 
received a refit at the Crown Agents Shipyard in London, and relaunched as the John Bisco on the 15th of December, late in the season to start heading south from the UK, but you can't Antarctica while your ship's still on the slip. The FIDS contingent joined their new ride and sailed on the 18th, with the usual last-minute rush of lading and stowage such projects generate. British stevedores, paid by the tonne transferred from the wharf to the ship or vice versa, and not based on neatness, got the cargo aboard but didn't stow it, as that took time and energy that didn't make them any money. In a hurry to get moving, the captain prepared to throw off lines with a lot of the goods still above decks. The high centre of gravity and short writing moment this gave the vessel prompted several experienced mariners to jump ship, concerned the whole enchilada would turn turtle and kill everyone aboard when it first encountered a wave, something the Atlantic features a lot of. The Board of Trade wouldn't let the ship depart without a full crew, so the captain went ashore to press gang any able-bodied punter into service. Among the stores causing this top-heavier-than-desired state was a created example of the de Havilland Hornet Moth, heading south to replace ice-cold Katie. The Hornet Moth took the basic design of its moth predecessor and replaced the tandem single cockpits with a two-seat cabin, its occupants sitting side by side. The enclosed cabin kept the wind off the pilot and their companion, but this new configuration gave new handling characteristics to the airframe. The new centre of gravity, the new drag coefficient, and the new pilot view led to several accidents at the hands of pilots experienced at flying the tandem seat moth and tiger moth iterations and expecting the same handling. Newly designed tapered wings gave the Hornet Moth an updated look and improved cruise performance, but also conferred nasty tip-stalling tendencies at low speeds, leading to de Havilland making square-tipped wing sets for retrofitting to existing airframes and for use in all new builds. These looked more staid, but led to less exciting landings. Aboard the Bisco for its first foray in this new role was Vivian Fuchs, one of James Wordy's students. Fuchs joined one of James Wordy's trips to Greenland, but missed out on a berth in Gino Watkins' air route surveying expeditions and the subsequent British Graham Land expedition. He took his geological interests to Africa, studying lake responses to climate variation and serving a stint in a team with paleoanthropologist Louis Leakey of Olduvai Gorge Note. He gained his doctorate through this Africa work and married his cousin, Joyce Connell, what with a Cambridge education and inbreeding lying among the finest traditions of the British aristocracy. The Second World War saw him serve in the Territorial Army and the Ivory Coast until recalled to Britain to take up a civil affairs role in the British Second Army. The Second Army took part in the D-Day landings and Fuchs arrived in Germany in time to witness the liberation of Belsen concentration camp. After hostilities ended, he stayed on in Germany as occupation governor in a district in Schleswig-Holstein. Demobbed with the rank of major, Fuchs ignored James Wordy's advice to continue a promising career path in Africa in order to take up a geologist slot in the FIDS. 
Fuchs departed his preliminary job interview confident he'd given a good showing, but his experience and maturity, Fuchs was 39 at the time, led to the interview panel offering him overall leadership of the entire survey just a few minutes later. The Colonial Office didn't give Fuchs a clear picture of what the Fids and Taberins already achieved. A lot. Where the specimens resided, all over the place in various museum collections and university archives, or the overall shape of the Fids' remit beyond go south and occupy space as much as possible and survey and geologize and meteorologize. Volume and visibility took priority over scientifically strategic goals or integration with existing datasets and collections. This worried Fuchs to a degree, but it also freed him to plan subsequent sampling and observation programs entirely from whole cloth. Doc Slesser sailed south aboard the Bisco, the only member of the 27-strong FIDS contingent with Antarctic experience. He sailed to give Fuchs insights into the challenges Stonington life posed, but would not stay on for another winter in the south. The ship's steering gear broke on the regular, seeing the expedition turning in pointless circles. No big deal in clement weather, but not something to inspire confidence in a vessel nearly commissioned to carry the FIDs into and out of the Southern Ocean and its ice fields. The John Bisco arrived in Stanley on the 25th of January 1948. This first arrival of the new vessel marred by its going aground on a mud bank just a few metres shy of the wharf, leading to the application of an extremely long and shonky looking plank gangway bridging the gap between ship and shore. After six days sorting the ship stores from shore stores and base building materials in the hull, the John Bisco departed Stanley but quickly turned back from the raging southern ocean it encountered the steering gear failing once more just to add to the fun, and took shelter in Sparrow Cove, where Isambard Kingdom Brunel's Great Britain lay scuttled. Digression The Great Britain was the first steel-hulled, steam-powered ocean-going vessel, and became the largest vessel afloat when launched in 1843. Construction took a lot longer and cost a lot more than originally projected, sending the Bristol shipyard constructing it into receivership, and the stress of the project wrecking Brunel's health. After a long career, a fire in the holds while carrying coal saw the ship seek refuge at Stanley. Deemed beyond repair, the insurers sold the hulk to the Falkland Islands Company for use as a floating warehouse. And yes, I did spell and pronounce that correctly. Gradually becoming too holy to serve in the role, the owners towed the Great Britain to Sparrow Cove and scuttled Brunel's engineering swan song. In 1970, a bunch of rich Brunel enthusiasts paid to have the Hulk refloated and towed back to Bristol on huge pontoons. A 30-year preservation and restoration project saw the Great Britain open to visitors as a museum in 2005. After waiting out the weather, the John Bisco reached Deception Island to find HMS Snipe anchored up, Governor Sir Miles Clifford taking a Royal Naval mediated turn around his extended grounds. Among his retinue, Royal Navy submariner John Huckle, Sir Miles Clifford's aide-de-camp, 
was supposed to be heading out on a three-week holiday, visiting the various FID bases, but this turned out to be the start of a three-year Antarctic sojourn. Huckle wintered at Port Lockroy that year with Falkland Island's handyman, Jimmy Smith. More on Huckle in coming episodes. The stores carried aboard John Biscoe for Sydney Island and South Georgia needed distributing, and to get at them, the two large crates containing the hornet moth needed lifting clear of the hold access. The crew rafted the aircraft crates ashore, where they stayed to await the crates of skis due to arrive from Canada. The crates arrived with the second visit of HMS Snipe, but turned out to be full of stovepipes instead of skis, so the hornet moth remained crated on the beach for the winter, neither use nor ornament to anyone, and eventually heading back to Stanley, still crated, a year after arriving. The John Biscoe sailed for Sydney Island, relieving the four winterers, replacing them with radio operator Ralph Lenton and meteorologist Derek Malling, operating under the leadership of zoologist Richard Laws. During two years on site, Laws accumulated data on the local elephant seals that informed the papers that became the seminal text on the species' breeding biology and behaviour. At Admiralty Bay, the crew of the John Biscoe met four Argentine occupants at their small accommodations just along the shore from the FIDS emergency shelter erected the previous summer, but not occupied that winter. Protest notes all round, but otherwise neighbourly co-occupation as the FIDS erected a more weatherproof hut and vittled it for the five winters left ashore under the leadership of Eric Platt. The John Biscoe returned to Deception Island to find an Argentine Navy mine layer watering from the well the FIDS sank into the geothermally heated beach. The John Biscoe tied up alongside, awaiting its turn to water, the otherwise sedate scene only ruined when two Argentine sailors discovered a cache of black powder left over from the whaling days in a barge on shore. They set about playing with the stuff and received facial burns in the ensuing moment of blokey idiocy. The mine-laying ship carried no doctor, but the John Biscoe carried Safit, with the two slated for Hope Bay and Stonington Island yet to land at their winter quarters, and Doc Slesser providing mentorship to Fuchs. The British doctors went ashore to tend to the ashen-faced Argentines as the John Biscoe took its turn at the water spigot. An urgent message from John Butler at Trapassi House on Stonington Island alerted Vivian Fuchs to the opportunity to take advantage of the passage forged by the Operation Windmill Icebreakers, which he seized. The opportunity, that is. The passage south went smoothly in spite of Captain Burden neglecting to pack any charts covering areas south of 63 degrees. The FIDs scoured their luggage, turning up a school atlas and some land maps, by which 2nd Officer Brown navigated tentatively but effectively. I covered the circumstances of the John Biscoe's Burton Island mediated transit through the recently broken and refrozen ice approaches to Marguerite Bay in episode 125, so I'll spare you the repetition, but it's worth mentioning that the John Biscoe took minor damage from its first dance with the sea ice, the pitch pine along the waterline receiving scouring to a depth of two inches, trees of the era still growing in imperial increments. The resulting splinters formed an unsettling brash in the small patch of open water the ship rested in 
while cargo and samples traded places in the holds, and Trapassi House swapped out old for new residents. Captain Burden and Vivian Fuchs earmarked Greenheart sheathing along the waterline as the top item of their Christmas wish list. Fuchs hoped the John Bisco and the Fitzroy, seconded to Fitz service once more, might reach Stonington Island a second time with more stores and seal meat from the Argentine Islands for the dogs, and the Hornet Moth, the aircraft featuring prominently in the field operations plan for that year. Ice conditions prevented the ships reaching further south than Port Lockroy, and with the Hornet Moth still boxed up on the shores of Deception Island and short its skis, no one was making a delivery flight. The same ice conditions precluded visiting the Argentine Islands, Admiralty Bay and Port Lockroy bases with sledging supplies, tying the occupants to their winter quarter sites until the relief the following summer. Frank Elliott returned from Stonington Island to his leadership role at Eagle House in Hope Bay, joined by Oliver Dick Bird, arriving from his year at the Argentine Islands, and Antarctic newcomers geologist Michael Green, surveyors Brian Jefford and S. St. C. McNeil, radio operator J. L. O'Hare, and Dr. William Sladen as medical officer. And I apologise that I've only got first name initials for a couple of those fids. If anyone knows their full names, please get in touch. In April, Elliot led Bird, Green and Jefford south to fill gaps in the Ross Island surveying to date and to geologise in those unknown spaces. Slushy surfaces and thin ice saw them shift from a sea ice transit to an overland route from Church Point onward. They worked across the heavily crevassed Russell East Glacier and weathered a hurricane-force storm with winds reaching over 100 knots. Quoting from Frank Elliott's journal, which is quoted in Sir Vivian Fuchs' 1982 book, Of Ice and Men, quote, It was impossible to walk in the wind. All one could do was to crawl between fierce gusts. We opened a tin of dog pemmican and crawled along, putting a block in each dog's mouth. Even then, most of the food blew away as they crunched it. They made no attempt to stand. In one extra strong gust, I was blown more than 50 yards before I could stop myself. Jefford was blown along, but managed to grab a sledge as he passed. The loaded sledges were swinging to and fro on the pickets with every gust. I've weathered many storms, but never one so bad. I have a very great respect for the design and strength of the pyramid tent. End quote. They surveyed as far as Hamilton Point on James Ross Island, where open water in Admiralty Sound prevented further sledging. The return slog reads as a near repeat of the Operation Tabaroon adventures in the area, with deep, soft snow piled up on the trail and bogging the sledges, though in this instance the possession of a full complement of skis and snowshoes made no difference to their progress. The snow was too soft and too deep, Someone had to wade ahead, effectively wallowing a firm enough surface for the dogs to find purchase on. At least they weren't relying on depots and huts laid in almost a half century earlier to supplement their supplies, 
and Elliot got the team back to Hope Bay without putting the dogs on the cannibal diet. All up, the 4A covered 350 miles of very taxing ground in 51 days. Governor Clifford radioed word that the Chileans established a base near Hope Bay. Fuchs wanted confirmation and instructed Elliot to sledge the 50 nautical miles over the Trinity Peninsula to investigate and present protest documentation. Elliot's party arrived to find the Chileans ensconced at Cape Legopil, taking Met Obs and settling in for the winter. Having demonstrated British administration in the region by presenting the standard letter of protest as per FID's mandate, the Brits enjoyed the Chilean hospitality before returning to Hope Bay. The November sledge journey along the Cape Cater coast, featuring Elliot, Jefford, O'Hare and McNeil, departed in early November. Eight days out, one of the dogs went through a crevasse bridge and slipped out of her harness, falling a hundred feet onto a ledge with no apparent injury. When called, Gert got to her feet and trotted along the ledge to its highest point, 50 feet shy of the surface. Elliot abseiled into the slot, swung onto the wall and traversed along it to receive the enthusiastic husky greetings awaiting him at the ledge. The surface team hauled Gert out and Elliot extracted himself with prussic loops. Three hours well spent to get a doggo back, I think. On the 18th of November, the party faced a difficult traverse through a large glaciated valley and the subsequent rocky ridges. In radio discussion with Fuchs that evening, himself on the trail in George VI Sound at the time, the troubling quiet at Hope Bay forced a decision to turn back. No one heard anything from Eagle House after the 8th, and the silence boded ill in an era of reliable radio communication. Elliot's team covered the 85 miles back to Hope Bay in just five days, arriving to find a gaping black absence where the mound of snow and chimneys normally marked out Eagle House. A solitary tent stood nearby their former home. Only a few forlorn dogs greeted their arrival and the tent lay unoccupied. Elliot headed to the penguin rookery where Doc Sladen camped out to make behavioural observations of the birds finding a tent pitched near the remains of the stone hut built by the Hope Bay Hopefuls in 1903. Only Doc Sladen greeted Elliot's arrival. Showing great emotional strain, the doctor told Elliot that Bird and Green died in the fire that destroyed Eagle House 16 days prior. The radios burnt with the hut, leaving Sladen unable to broadcast his dire news to the rest of the FIDs and more alone than most people will ever experience. In Of Ice and Men, Sir Vivian quotes Doc Sladen's subsequent recounting of the tragedy, and I draw on those words wholesale. Quote, the first thing I saw was a dense cloud of smoke, most of which was coming from the north end of the hut. The snow was dark with soot on the leeward side. I found the door with difficulty and tried to push my way in billows of smoke rushed out. The door was half drifted up. I just managed to scramble out again. I tried to force my way through the WT window, but was compelled to come out as the fumes were so hot and suffocating. There was no answer to frantic shouts made between breaths inside the window. 
As I ran round the south end of the hut, I noticed a glow at the junction of the engine shed, back porch, and main building. Snow was falling away around it, and flames were being fanned by the gale. I tried pushing snow down into it, but to no avail. Smoke was coming out of every chimney. The roof at the south end was ablaze, and I had to give up all hope of rescue. The sinister silence, the dark smoke torrenting down to the sea, pressed low by the gale and drift, the feeling of complete and utter helplessness. Worse still, the thought of Dick and Mike, with no one to save them, was the most terrifying thing I have ever experienced. The main roof collapsed at approximately 0300. Between 0230 and 0300, I was moving all dogs at the east end of the span to the west end. They were already blackened by the smoke. At 0330, a piece of burning wood set light to the store dump for the new base on Hut Point, nearly 200 yards away. I could do nothing as the sparks were rushing down in that direction. At 0345, the north extension of the hut was aglow, and this roof fell in at 0400. At 0500, the hut was still burning, and the store pile fire spreading rapidly. I went to investigate, but some ammunition exploded. I also remembered that there was a store of explosives on the point. At 0600, the smoke was less, and it was possible to get into the tin galley, the cabin, saved from the fire because it was buried under snow, for a short rest out of the wind. I did not stay long for fear of fumes. The floor beams of the hut were still burning. Tins of condensed milk were bursting continuously. The stores on Hut Point were now burning with less vigour, but small ammunition was still exploding. At 0700, the temperature was 13 degrees Fahrenheit. The wind was mostly gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour, with some drift. I walked around, trying to keep warm until 0800, by which time I was satisfied that there was no danger of anything else catching fire. I rested for three and a half hours in my observation tent at the rookery. The heavy depression that seemed to well all around me, a feeling of great loneliness and deepest sorrow, the grim sight of utter desolation that greeted me every time I passed the still smouldering hut, the work we had struggled to do to the best of our ability under very trying conditions, seven of us instead of nine, the report so carefully prepared and containing so much of interest and experience. All this seemed as nothing when my mind turned back to the two companions we would never see again. Their quiet and unruffled outlook on life had never ceased to impress me. I felt much in need of those qualities now. End quote. For over two weeks, Doc Sladen kept his traumatised mind busy with penguin observations. He tried to contact other FIDS parties with the field radio, but the portable unit couldn't reach anyone. Sixteen days with the cold, the wind, and the grief, and no outlet but ornithology notes. There's a lot of tragedy in Antarctic history, but I think Bird and Green's deaths stand apart because fire is the fucking worst.
The five men buried their dead and hunkered down to await their summer relief. The Hope Bay fire prompted fortnightly fire drills at all FID's bases. This practice paid off the following winter when Trapassi House experienced its first fire. Boxes of stores stored in the ceiling storage space pressed against uninsulated chimney plumbing which heated the cardboard to the ignition point. Extinguishers, water buckets and fire axes brought to bear by practiced hands saw the existential threat taken care of in three minutes. Bob Spivey nearly lost all his toes to frostbite after heading out on trail with footwear suited to the mild conditions. The temperature fell away dramatically, and without better gear to hand, his toes went all black and hard and only responded to treatment back at Trapassi House slowly. I think I mentioned in the last episode to feature the rare that the FIDs proposed buying the East Base facilities from the United States State Department. Finn Ronnie urged the same State Department to occupy the facilities permanently in order to not cede the ground to the British, but no one with the money and leverage to make that happen took any interest. The State Department refused to sell the buildings to the FIDs and didn't send anyone south to use them, so the FIDs took them over and used them regardless, though you don't find much mention of that in the official British accounts of the era. The East Base buildings were in a poor state after seven years on site and two years of intensive use, but they served as a storehouse for seal carcasses and equipment that otherwise would have deteriorated more quickly if left out in the weather. Huckle and Fuchs took the motorboat to Nini Island late in the autumn. Calm conditions made for good progress outbound, but the grease ice that formed behind them slowed their later return to a standstill. The motor wouldn't work once the cooling inlet blocked with slush, and rowing only got them halfway home, as the ice thickened and hardened to the point the oars couldn't break it. The day sailors faced a cold-soaked fate if they couldn't solve for X, X being getting home in the face of ice too thick to row through and too thin to stand on. Fuchs broke the ice ahead of the bow with the boat hook, while Huckle applied a stern skull. Their Trapassi house companions, either ignorant of the danger or unsympathetic in spite of it, jeered the unhappy pair and placed bets on their progress as the boat neared home. Lesson learnt, don't go boating in low temperatures. Stonehouse played a radio-based lark on Fuchs, getting everyone in on the joke but the butt. Being the only Cambridge graduate, Fuchs stood as the only resident passionately interested in the alma mater's performance in The Boat Race, an annual open-weight eights rowing competition between Oxford and Cambridge universities, steeped in extremely boring lore and loved by the Brits with the same irrational passion as they applied to Kendall Mintcake, Blake's Jerusalem and the Monarchy. Setting all the clocks forward, the Trapassi residents gathered around the radio at the appointed time of the race. The announcer, Stonehouse, called the competition from a helicopter, the generator next to which Stonehouse made the broadcast, and recited a tale of Cambridgean woe. The Oxford Blues led by several lengths throughout the race. After their ignominious loss, the Cambridge boat sank with all hands. Laugh? I nearly did. 
Ray 80, took over the Paddy Darkey team after John Tonkin's departure and led the sledge driver training program, applying what he learnt in his year at Hope Bay and during the trail journey that led him to Stonington. Dog food ran short that winter. Too few seals remained in the wake of the 1947 dual occupancy, and sea ice prevented the FID's support vessels bringing more south from the Argentine islands. The dogs went on short rations, receiving a pound of pemmican a day for three days, then a day of seal oil-soaked stockfish and half a pound of pemmican, then a day of fasting, enough to keep them alive and almost healthy until seals arrived, and preserving the bulk of the dog pemmican for trail operations. The hangar constructed to hold ice-cold Katie received enlargement in anticipation of the larger de Havilland Hornet moth's arrival, but remained empty with the airframe still in its crates on the Deception Island shore. The first trail outing took Huckle, Spivey, Stonehouse, Brown and Fuchs out for the better part of a month under the leadership of Ray 80. Five sledges carried two and a half tonnes of stores to Alexander Island, preparatory to a long summer foray. Departing on the 27th of July, the party experienced difficult conditions, deep drift making sledging progress a matter of constant struggle and regular writing after capsizing, and fogs forcing the lead sledge driver to rely on dead reckoning more than contact navigation. The dogs only received a pound of pemmican a day due to the seal shortage, so it's a major feather in Ray 80's cap that the party managed to depot a tonne of stores at Cape Nicholas. On the return journey, Vivian Fuchs intended to replenish trail supplies at a Mushroom Island depot, but struggled to keep Darkey on course, the dog persistently leading the team seven degrees off Fuchs' designated heading. Plotting the dog's intended track over ground one evening, the humans realised the dog, excluded from discussions about the Mushroom Island detour, was either triangulating or scenting the shortest route back to Stonington Island, over 100 nautical miles away. With light sledges, hardening surfaces and clear weather, the return slog took only six of the 25 days the party spent on trail. At mid-September, Stonehouse led a party comprising Blakelock, Dalgleish and Spivey, north to Darbell Bay. Fuchs and Aidy began the journey in support with one dog team towing booster supplies and the other a dory for crossing open water leads expected in the narrow channels the course required the party take close to the mainland shore. As a general rule, narrow channels mean strong currents mean dodgy sea ice coverage. The sea ice turned out to be too thin for sledges and too thick for the boat, so Fuchs and Aidy returned to Stonington with the dory while everyone else task-switched to a survey of Adelaide Island. They found a bamboo marker left in a can, likely placed by Gordon, cartographer on Charcot's second Antarctic expedition, on Jenny Island, and a previously unknown emperor penguin regree at Dion Island. While only comprising 100 adult birds and 70 chicks, this warrants noting as the first emperor penguin rookery discovered in the area. Spivey and Blakelock joined the Antarctic Swimming Club when a sledge broke through thin ice. Stonehouse renewed his membership on skiing up to assist. Stonehouse's dogs, 
unattended, untethered, and feeling left out of the party, arrived on scene just as Spivey and Dalglish's dogs sparked up a fight. With much unloading, rope work, ski bridges, and, I suspect, swearing, the monkeys worked the whole soggy mess to safety, the only casualty of the incident being an emperor penguin one of the dogs took down after escaping its harness in the fracas. Stonehouse's northern party returned to Stonington Island after covering 500 miles in 56 days. Meanwhile, a southern party comprising Fuchs, Aidy, Huckle and Brown departed south for the Cape Nicholas Depot. They intended surveying the northern end of Alexander Island as a prelude to the FIDs establishing a new base there. They found only high, rugged cliffs. Thwarted in their primary goal, Huckle and Brown began a survey of George VI Sound to fill in the blanks left on the charts after the British Graham Land Expedition's efforts, and Fuchs and Aidy continued south to geologise more of Alexander Island, reaching Fossil Bluff, much more of which anon in future episodes. Huckle and Brown returned to Stonington Island having sledged 500 nautical miles. Fuchs and Aidy reached the island on the 20th of January, having covered 940 nautical miles in their three months on trail. The sea ice led out of Nini Fjord in the immediate vicinity of Stonington Island in January, but an estimated 40 miles of dense pack still lay between the Trapassi residence and open water. An iceberg, grounded in the bay since humans started visiting the area, departed revealing the rock that previously held it in place as barely submerged and posing a significant danger to shipping. The FIDs could launch their motorboat and get some sampling done, but the chances of the John Bisco reaching them that summer looked to be less than even money. With enough food on hand but slender coal margins, this could pose some difficulty. With Stonehouse, Aidy, Huckle, Jones and Randall, Already two winters deep in their Antarctic residencies, the psychological price set by the sea showed up as a grim line item on the invoice. At Port Lockroy, in late August, Ken Pawson led a boat party comprising John Blythe and Bill Richards, intending to stay overnight on Dumer Island, named by Charcot after the President of the French Chamber of Deputies, who later became President of France. Left alone at Bransfield House, base leader George Barry became concerned when the boat didn't return for three days. He spoke on the radio to Vivian Fuchs, mapping out a plan to build a raft to go in search of his missing companions, but the FID's leader, having studied at Cambridge, spotted the flaw in this plan, that being its suicidal nature given the tidal currents, wind and ice movements so prominent in the Numaya Channel, and talked Barry out of it. The Argentine island occupants lay nearest, but couldn't help due to the dearth of sledging equipment and stores. They did possess a boat, but ice conditions would make the 40-mile transit to Port Lockroy an extremely dodgy prospect at that time of year. Fuchs eventually settled on a plan to sledge a boat the 250 miles from Hope Bay along the shoreline sea ice. The Eagle House residents possessed the best-stocked larder and field store, and while the journey presented a daunting prospect, the FIDs outside the situation couldn't countenance doing nothing. Fortunately, the missing men turned up, 
six days late, before the Eagle House search party set off. Floating ice had hemmed the boaters in on a distant shore and prevented their return. They killed two seals to supplement the food they brought with them and to provide blubber for cooking and warmth. The wind came around, unlocking their boat, at which they rowed home in the teeth of a gale, all hale and hearty, but similarly newly alert to the challenges of solo boat ops during the colder months as Fuchs and Co. On the same day Eagle House caught fire and killed Dick Bird and Michael Green, Eric Platt, the leader of the party wintering at Admiralty Bay, collapsed while in the field with Jack Reed. Reed carried his companion on his back some way, but the weight slowed him down to the point he decided it better to make a dash for the hut and return with help. In the gathering darkness, he met a search party, heading out to look for the hours late field party. Reed led them to the pass where he cached his companion, but Platt was dead, the cause being determined as a heart attack. His companions buried him near the hut, and his remains remain there to this day. The John Biscoe retrieved the five fids remaining at Hope Bay and reached as far as the Argentine Islands in the austral summer of 1948-49, but couldn't reach any further south. The ship only reached Port Lockroy very late in the season. Looking to reassign resources in the wake of the three deaths and the strained various emergencies placed on the disparate fids presence, Port Lockroy went into mothballs. During his first winter in Antarctica, Vivian Fuchs dropped military rank from the civilian ranks he led. While the British occupation of space in Antarctica held military origins, and most of the personnel served in the armed forces during the Second World War, the habitual deference afforded military rank and service experience sometimes saw the best candidates for particular roles overlooked because of technical seniority concerns so long as military rank pertained. While a military man himself, having demobbed with the rank of Major, Fuchs recognised the value of ending a habit born in darker times. In case I forget to mention it in a future episode, the practice of issuing protest notes to any foreign party encountered on land or in a sea lane considered by Britain to belong to Britain ended in 1952. It's a small but interesting footnote I found in the books I used in preparing my notes for this episode and I don't want it to fall through the cracks when I get to covering the lead-up years to the IGY. I mentioned in a recent episode that my wife started a pie business, making American-style dessert pies as the fulfilment of a long-held ambition. Without having met in our marine science career paths, it's not surprising that we're financially under the pump as we near our 50s. Marine scientists, having to take a vow of poverty and another of chastity, what with the fish smell and poverty keeping most potential mates other than other marine scientists well away from us. She's looking to purchase a vehicle by which to transport her wares and from which to sell her wares to punters beyond the western suburbs of Melbourne, and with the banks laughing heartily at our loan applications and the fish smell, her friend Annette, who is awesome, kickstarted a GoFundMe campaign. I've done nothing with my Patreon account. My PayPal still exists, and people occasionally run some money through it, by which I fuel my bibliophilic habits. But if you'd like to support the series, 
I'd be grateful if you helped get Cherry Pie to the next stage by contributing to the Van Fund. Hashtag Van, number four, Cherry Pie American Pies will get you among the social media side of the scheme, where I'm assured the relevant links exist. GoFund.me forward slash 19D35D97 will get you direct to Annette's campaign. My wife's a much better person than I am, and the love the community is showing her already gives me warm and fuzzy feelings by proxy. I'm confident if folks who like what I'm publishing here flick her some bucks, she'll be able to take this next technological step in developing her dream business, and people in the eastern and northern suburbs of Melbourne will finally gain access to quality American-style dessert pies. That's not a lot of leverage in there for you. It's a gratitude thing. And don't donate if you're struggling or have other worthy causes to support, including yourself. Hard times all around at the moment. Grateful this episode to Evelyn Blackwell, who got in touch to let me know how to find the Big Dead Place website in a web archive. I'll append the address to show notes on Facebook and WordPress. The preserved version still features lots of links that lead nowhere but a 404 page, but it's still nice to see Nick's work available in some form. More Antarctica for your ears, the series This Is Our Time reports from and on the Homeward Bound Voyages. The first season came out four years ago, and the second season is currently in production, with the most recent episode published just a week ago. I'm hoping to speak to the series producer in late September or early October. Take care and destroy Carthage. And furthermore, I contend that you should appreciate your coffee and that you should give Hadley Mearsham a wide berth. This podcast is an output of World's Laziest Busker Productions. All rights reserved, all wrongs reversed. <laughs>